This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Who's Who at NASA podcast. For our July edition, we spoke with Kimberly Hambicken, Deputy Project Manager at the Human Robotics System Project in Johnson Space Center. Kim Hambicken is currently building user interfaces for Valkyrie, a six foot two, two hundred eighty six pound humanoid robot. The two legged Valkyrie builds on NASA's Robonaut, a robotic assistant currently on board the International Space Station. Kim, thanks for being with us. Kim, can you, uh, just to, to start things off, can you talk about uh, Valkyrie, what it is? So, um, Valkyrie is a robot that we designed, developed, built, and made slightly functional for something called the DARPA Robotics Challenge. Um, this was a 15-month venture that we took on and was a very, very difficult challenge. And I was leading up the uh, user interfaces for the robot because we knew that we would need someone operating the robot and I have several years of experience writing human interfaces for other NASA robots and um, so that was my main job on the Valkyrie project. Now you're, you're operating the robot, can you talk about some of the challenges of remotely operating robots? Um, there are many challenges. So. The, the main issue we needed to deal with was that we knew to expect a time delay between the robot and the user interfaces, which makes everything more difficult, especially with a uh, bipedal walking robot like Valkyrie. And so I had to take uh, tools that I had developed for some of our rover activities in the past where we were um, doing some analog field tests of operating robots like they would have been operated on the moon or um, at any distant location where we have some kind of intermediate time delay of like five seconds or more round trip. And so um, I took things that I learned from those experiences uh, and tried to push them into our operator interfaces. The other issue we have with that is we know the bandwidth of the networks is usually very limited. And we can't push back all sorts of camera images and, and high-resolution sensor data. So it, it's a tricky balance between sending back the right information without sending back too much because then you get buffering of data or loss of lots of packets. Um, so we're still trying to figure out what that balance is, um, but hopefully we'll we'll in a few more years' time, we'll have a better understanding of how we can operate these robots with these time delays. And what can what kind of tasks can we expect uh, a robot like Valkyrie to accomplish? Well, right now we're looking at things like um, sending a robot like Valkyrie ahead of a mission on maybe Mars or um, a lunar surface and having these robots actually set up habitats and bases um, before crew comes. So precursor mis- missions are uh, one of the focuses for this operating over time delay because we would still need humans supervising the activity, but the humans obviously will not be next to the robot on the surface. Um, and we also are envisioning a robot like Valkyrie being an actual astronaut assistant. Uh, rather, So we know we'll, our crews will probably be 
quite small that um, will be on these future missions. And so if we can have a robot that interacts with the humans um, and can use the tools that humans can use and can fit into hatches the way that humans can fit into them, then we we can possibly you know double the crew size with these astronaut assistant robots that are humanoid in form. What are the new technical capabilities for Valkyrie? Well, the biggest um, technical capability we put on that robot is the two legs. Um, now, Robonaut 2, which is on space station, does have two legs, but they're climbing legs uh, used to climb around on the handrails and the sea tracks that are inside of space station. And we had never done a walking robot before at NASA and figured that the DARPA Robotics Challenge was the time to actually start getting that technology pushed out and advanced. And so um, we learned quite a bit about walking. And right now, we're actually partnered up with the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition to put their very advanced walking software on Valkyrie. Um, and they're doing so, and she's walking quite beautifully right now, um, because they, they're, they're pretty much the experts in the US for um, walking software. And it is a very difficult thing to do. So we're pulling in the best that we, we've got in the country to help us out with that. And um, that collaboration is going quite well. And while we're talking about the robot's ability to walk, can you talk, too, about what kinds of technology allow a robot to see and, and, and sense its surroundings? Yes. So that is um, another kind of advancement that we have on Valkyrie that Robonaut didn't get to have because the, the sensors that were out um, when we designed this robot were so far advanced from what we had when we designed Robonaut that it... it kind of was an exponential increase in sensing ability. Um, we mostly use LIDARs, which give a kind of depth image to the robot instead of just a 2D regular camera image. Um, things like the Microsoft Connect, um, but we have some, some more sophisticated sensors on the robot that give us really good depth information because that's, that's the key. Um, sensor for, or sensing ability for robots is to be able to understand the depth and then we can really make out individual objects from depth maps. So, um, so we do have cameras because the human operators really appreciate image views. Um, humans can pick up a lot of cues from a 2D image that they can't actually see with noisy 3D data coming back. And then the other really, um, really cool advancement, I guess, was that there in the robotics community, there is this open source project called the Robot Operating System, or ROS for short. And what it allows is for everyone to have their robots communicate the same way. So people can share um, algorithms, sensory processing algorithms, control algorithms, different kinds of applications they've created for their robots, they can share that with everyone else who has a robot that speaks this Ross language. And Robonaut has been um, converted to speak Ross. And with Valkyrie, we started from the ground up for it to speak Ross. So we've been able to take advantage of open source tools that are really useful, um, especially with the human interfaces. We 
we did not have to start from scratch like everyone in the robotics community had to do maybe just even five years ago. And it's allowed us to focus on the really hard problems rather than spending a lot of time doing things that we've already done before or that someone else has already done before just because we didn't all speak the same language. Yeah. So that was really exciting. Yeah, that seems like an exciting area to me too. And can you talk a little bit more about why it's important that this the robotic communication is open source? Well, um, most of the work in robotics um, that's pushed any robots you see out in the world today started at universities who were funded by a government agency like the Department of Defense or NASA. And those universities have graduate students coming in and out. You know, there's a rather high turnover, hopefully. And what was happening was everyone was having to write their own software from scratch, and nobody could afford there wasn't really any, anything you could go out and buy that was just robot um, communication. So we couldn't really get very far in the robotics world. And eventually, um, there were a lot of different pushes for having a common API for all, a common programming interface for all of these robots. And eventually, um, there was a group that finally made a big push to get this robot operating system out, and it's kind of, it's caught on. And having it be open source allows all of these university research groups to get this software for free and to commit anything that they discover. If they discover bugs in the software or if they've created something new, they can change the code because it's open source and everyone who uses it can take advantage of these um, advancements that are made. So it's pushing robotics research forward at a much greater pace than we were seeing. And I think that, I mean, we're actually starting to see this. Google has made a big push into robotics, and they've bought several companies. Many of those companies were actually using this raw software. Um, so I think we're kind of at a, a bit of a tipping point in robotics because we finally are able to have people sharing um, the really hard stuff uh, so that groups can look at something new instead of reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. What are you working on now? Well, I recently um, was got a promotion um, deputy project manager for the Human Robotic Systems Project, which is funded out of um, Space Tech and the Game Changing Development Project. Mm -hmm. And we focus on projects with human and robot interaction in any kind of way. Um, I am actually working on something called the Space Robotics Challenge, which we are still formulating. And um, uh, a request for information has already gone out, and we've gotten some information from people on if, if anyone would be interested in participating in the Space Robotics Challenge. Um, it's kind of it's not technically, but it's kind of like a follow-on to the DARPA Robotics Challenge. Mm -hmm. the, the finals for that are in June. And from what I understand, although this may not be completely true, it's just rumor at this point, um, the, the robots that many groups who are participating in the DARPA Robotics Challenge, the robots that they received from DARPA um, 
they now belong to Google because the group that provided those robots got bought by Google in the middle of this um, competition. And it's possible that those robots will be pulled back to Google because the contract has ended at that point. And we want to keep these groups doing really cool stuff, advancing you know, humanoid robot behaviors. So we're looking to do the same thing, have some robots out in the community, have people competing in simulation and then on these robots to see how far we can push um, behaviors that we know we'll need for robots in future exploration missions. And um, I'm currently trying to organize that competition. Yeah, and what role do you think will robots play in the future of space exploration? What are the possibilities? So, I, the possibilities are kind of endless. We focus at JSC on um, human-assistive robots, mm -hmm. you know, robots interacting with humans in any capacity. And so we really see, um, we have some rover technology here, and the rovers are drivable by people. But we also make them robots that can be driven remotely um, and possibly have robotic manipulators on them. So, you know, we see them as human transport on surfaces. We see them as um, habitat transports on surfaces. And like I said before, we really see a lot of different types of robots for precursor activities before mm -hmm. humans land on a surface. And that includes scouting robots that go around and map the area and see if there's anything cool to look at. And robots like Robonaut, um, which could be climbing around on the in-transit vehicles, maintaining spacecraft, climbing outside, maintaining spacecraft, um, and Valkyrie-type robots that can walk around right next to an astronaut and serve as an assistant, maybe hold tools. Um, so, you know, there's a, a really large array. I, I've, I've heard someone say, and I, I can't really remember, I wanted, it was uh, high up in NASA saying, you know, we, of course we're going to have robots on all of our future missions. So um, that, that's good to hear because we really think that we can provide um, a lot of assistance and kind of bring down costs on some of these missions if we can get these robots into a state where, where they have enough autonomy to help out in, um, in a useful way. And finally, speaking about autonomy, what do you think still needs to be improved before we can have fully autonomous robots? Oh, so much. Um, that's actually, you know, that's, that's quite a ways away. We still, the perception problem isn't solved. Um, we've, we've come a lot further in a very small amount of time, but they're still um, trying to make the robot understand an unknown environment is still very difficult. So we, we currently use humans in the loop to help the robot understand things about its environment and how to direct its behavior. Um, and all of the interfaces I've been working on directly involves the human to make decisions, and then the human sends these high-level commands to the robot. Like, um, for instance, with the DARPA Robotics Challenge, we had, a, we had to turn a 
three different valves. And for the robot to do that fully autonomously, it has to understand what a valve is. It has to accurately locate the valve and then understand how to turn the valve and when the valve is shut. So um, most of that's very difficult to do. And what we were doing was telling the robot where the valve is how to turn the valve, and then giving it a high-level command to go do what we just instructed it to do. So it's not really um, fully autonomous, but we're hoping that we can create tools to allow the robots to learn um, from the human assistants. And I, you know, learning is another area that needs to become, I guess, more mature before robots will be fully autonomous. because for them to do things on their own, make decisions on their own, they're going to have to be able to learn about how to make those decisions. Um, I think on the control side, making the robots move and function, we're, we're a lot closer. Um, but it's those high-level capabilities that humans have that we're still working on getting into robots. And it, it may be... 10 years, it may be 50 years. Um, it just depends on the advancement in sensory uh, capabilities and in the artificial intelligence area on um, having, having these machines learn about their environment. Well, Kim, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome.